Every November, as the weather and leaves continue to change and we enter a season of Thanksgiving as well as gift-giving, this podcast sets aside a few episodes to focus on how we can make our lives and our careers better and more fulfilling. And so we begin the third annual presentation of this enlightening series. You'll hear from artists, coaches, and performers, and how they have found a balance between their onstage and offstage lives providing perspective and insight from their own challenges and experiences. Hello, my name is Jules Helm. I am originally from Portland, Oregon. Currently, I primarily live in New York, but I'm back and forth from Los Angeles to New York. And my passion and profession is teaching movement to actors and also movement to all. Jules starts us off with a focus on self-care and personal growth, using movement and acting techniques to bring both our mind and body into alignment. He will be sharing his own journey of self-discovery as he learned to better love himself and be more comfortable with others, keeping performance on stage rather than having it mask the rest of his life as well. We will also get into the various techniques he teaches to bring actors into a more authentic presentation of themselves as well as their characters. As Jules says, the first step toward great acting is deeper self-discovery and realization, which is a great place for us to start bettering ourselves and bettering our careers. It's not just feeding and indulging and dwelling in the narcissism, but it's becoming aware of, oh, wow, this is what I'm up to. I'm running a racket right now because I do this and it's not really authentic to who I am. I might be getting a reward, but it's not the real reward that I, I want or need. Welcome and thank you for joining me for another episode of Why I'll Never Make It an award-winning Top 25 Theatre podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, an actor and singer, talking with fellow creatives each episode of personal struggles and professional hardships with lessons we can all learn from. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can subscribe to bonus episodes and offer your own financial support to the production of this podcast. Again, that's whyillnevermakeit.com. Well, hello, Jules. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a, it's a pleasure to meet you and get to talk to you today. Likewise, Patrick. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure being here. Now, you mentioned that you're originally from Portland and came to New York and you bounced back between New York and Los Angeles. What was it like growing up in Portland, being your hometown? You know, it's it's really interesting because Portland, while I was born there, I never really consider myself somebody from portland or the northwest and the reason is uh my parents left chicago before i was born just before i was born and they left because they thought well chicago is a little too crazy there's so much stuff going on in the world that we want to bring our kids up in a, in a more wholesome area of the world so uh there's the saying you know you could take somebody out of the city but you can't take the city out of the person and so while I was growing up in Oregon, and then later on rural Oregon, we actually moved to a small uh, hobby farm in, the, in a small canyon, miles and miles out to where my nearest neighbor was about a mile away, and the other neighbor being the other side was a mile away. 
but there was still the city within me because my household, my parents, wherever you go, there you are, had that city energy. Really, actually, some positive, some incredibly positive parts to my youth and also some, eh, what would you call it? It just an incongruency because of the uh, inner city outlooks and uh, lifestyle compared to rural Pacific Northwest Oregon. You have to understand there's actually two elements that were strong at play during that time. Uh, one was sort of this new age movement, kind of hippie, LSD, yada, yada, all these other one side. But then there's also a very conservative base out there where it's like old school, wild, wild west, gunslinging, um, a lot of, in my opinion, uh, hard judgment and fear. So I ended up stumbling into the performing arts. It was like, oh, okay, here's a place where all this strange energy can go somewhere. Yeah, I think that's a similar story for a lot of actors that we were either looking for a place to belong or we wanted a place to to put all of our creativities and energies. And I think that the theater community is a very welcoming place to both, <laughs> both sides of ourselves. Yeah. Yes, and absolutely. And so finding this new home, I poured all my passion into it. And so when I moved to Los Angeles, I was very young. I was 17. I left and now all of a sudden I'm in show business. And so uh, this is where there's sort of this, this double edge uh, to it because the business side is different than the artist side, yet they're together. And so there was a lot of predatorial behavior towards a young man in Hollywood. And uh, so it, it was scary. So I kept my distance and I did my best, yada, yada, and sort of was making my way. And, and then when I got to New York, I suddenly felt at home. There was something about the city of New York, which was different than Chicago, and I, that the, things were more direct in the communication. No means no, typically. It's not the same. There was not uh, the we'll call you um, spirit. Oh, yeah, that's great. We love it. We'll call you. And then you never hear back. It was, I always felt that there was more honesty and integrity and authenticity. I've since evolved. And that's, a, 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 I think, a naive generalization. But that was my experience. Yeah. So now I'm back and forth between both Los Angeles and New York. Certainly for myself, I would say that for the most part, there's the, like in the audition room, you get the, thank you, thank you for coming, and you you generally know what that means. But there's only been a couple instances where it's like they raved about me, and it's like, oh, this was great, this was great, and then crickets, you never hear anything. So there can sometimes still be that very indirect praise, but then it doesn't lead to anything in the audition room. Well, this is another piece with growing up and getting more perspective and I guess knowing what to take personally and what not to take personally. And I guess one of the things that I uh, am a huge advocate for is, and this is one of the reasons why I do love teaching so much, or I don't even call it teaching, I call it more facilitating, is um, I hope that young people who are uh, pursuing their dreams in the performing arts can perhaps waste a little less time feeling lousy because they've taken something personally that has nothing. It's so completely out of their control. You know, they, they, they've shown up, they've had an opportunity to introduce themselves to someone 
and don't even go in with the expectation of this one or that gig, uh, but that you're meeting people. And if you bring that self-love and that kind of energy to the room, um, it sticks because you might not get this one or the next one, but two years or three years or six months, all of a sudden you'll get a call out of the blue or get an email or something. And it's like, oh yeah, we'd like you to come in. We think you're perfect for this. So, so that's, that's one of the pieces of what I love to sort of feed the underbelly, the artist's soul, if you will. So that way the business doesn't take such a toll on the person. Well, we've talked a lot about growing up and the lessons that we learned, and this leads us right into the first story that you wanted to talk about. From an early age, you and your father would watch films together, and one of your favorite actors was Charlie Chaplin. Now, I must admit that I, too, watched a lot of black and white movies growing up, which is, I, I would say, not really common for young kids to do, especially not these days. But what was it about these silent movies, Charlie Chaplin in particular, that captivated your attention? It was profound. And I had no idea at the time how profound this experience was. And it was because what I experienced with Charlie Chaplin was he was fighting for the unsung hero. He was fighting for the underdog. He was uh, taking a stand against injustice and corruption of power. And for whatever reason, at an incredibly young age, whether it was my parents leaving Chicago and that influence, whether it was um, just the way my household was, whether it was the, I don't know, principles or idealistic of what things should be and what consideration was and, and good form. I, I have no idea, but Charlie Chaplin just stuck with me. And, and so I was, I was all about it. And I love the fact that it was humor because it was done in this such a charming and innocent way, this uh, protest, if you will, or this advocation for things. Uh, that it was delightful and successful. People weren't offended by it. It's kind of snuck in under the radar. And again, this is hindsight. This is my, the, but the original draw was, I want to do that. I want to, I want to make, take a stand. I want to make a difference. And uh, so Charlie Chaplin was a, was a big piece of that. And because my father worked for the uh, school district, that's how we got the films. That's how the projectors came home. At a very young age, I was already obsessed with film and how the projection worked, you know, frame, stop, frame, stop, frame, stop. And I was directing the uh, neighbor kids in my Westerns. We had no equipment, nothing at all, <laughs> but I was directing them and take after take. And they finally would so get So you bored. were able to film these, these little uh, stories that you came up with. I was filming them with the camera of my imagination. But later on, believe it or not, very shortly after, about five years old, uh, my mom was convinced and she bought me a Super 8 camera. And so, yes, I filmed some of the things. And uh, yeah, it was it was when video came out. Boy, that was a real rage. Then, uh, of course, I was enrolling everybody I possibly could, although everyone lives so far away. That was a bit of a challenge. Right. But it sounds like you had to, at least the the background there, you know, with nature and, and being around. You know, So at least you had the wide open spaces to do your stories. Yes. Yes. So that was that was the beginning of it. And uh, the second major seed in my life uh, actually came 
as I said, comedy was, I mean, I thought I was a big shot. I booked my first professional role at eight. It's like, oh, wow. Hey, I got a speaking part and I think I'm a big deal. So I'm a very shy by nature kind of because I'm sensitive and, and I'm warm, but I'm also like, I don't like to get hurt. So uh, of course, yeah. there was this shyness about me. Well, suddenly now I had a, an ego at eight and, and I thought I would be a stand-up comedian. And I got on stage at age 12 and froze like a deer in the headlights. I mean, I literally, I went so out of body. So what's it called? Disassociated to where I could not, I, I didn't even know how to walk. I lost the ability to say words. I was so shocked and, and, uh, and paralyzed. And, and this set me in a direction. And the road was a direction where I stumbled across uh, Michael Jackson at age 13, dancing and singing out his heart. I mean, he's just so alive. And I ended up, uh, there were these lip sync contests. And at 12 and 13, I'm in adult nightclubs doing lip sync contests. And I won, I guess, because it was the cute, it was the cute points, you know, this 13, I was still, I was still, I was borderline still in the cute era, you know, not quite a troublemaker. And that hooked me dance. I got a scholarship to a dance studio and was in, but the fear piece around speaking and uh, all of that continued on. And it wasn't until much later when I went to a well-known Meisner based acting studio here in the city that everything changed. But as a child, did you have many friends growing up? You said that they were far apart and you would use them in your films sometimes, but did you have a lot of friends growing up? We were friendly, but there's there's always that, at uh, this particular point in my life, probably the, part of it was the Chicago defense, never let anybody too close. So I was very lonely, very isolated because while I may have been popular in school, uh, I was or or one of the w- most well known. I don't know that I was one of the most well liked, and I certainly felt very, very isolated and alone. So I had these connections, but there was always a uh, um, a, a lens, a filter, a disconnect. Why do you think that disconnect was there? Obviously, if you were known and popular, usually that means that you're well liked as well. Why do you think that one didn't correlate with the other? One was a persona a false self, um, a a misunderstood little young person who um, really wanted to be seen and cared for. And, uh, you know, grade school and high school, uh, kids are not always particularly nice. (laughs) This is true. And so it ends up becoming, um, I don't know, a transactional or uh, being funny for love. Uh, being talented for love instead of being seen and appreciated for one's heart and vulnerability. So uh, that that's been a lifelong part of my process. And, you know, another thing that comes out of the uh, performing arts training in good training, it can be really eye opening and connect one to themselves. It takes, it's a, it's, it's a journey. I would say uh, of, self-discovery using a number of different tools, techniques, and having trusted trusted people around you to set safe spaces so that way you can learn, discover, connect, and, and find out that you're okay. You're enough. I'm enough. Yeah, it seems like that 
this is one area which the arts and therapy seem to correlate very well. It's it's all about getting back to to that childlike, uh, you know, what we learned, what we felt or didn't feel as a child, and using that, you know, to not just heal ourselves as as adults, but then also to grow and expand as actors as well. Because that childlike wonder is something we have to keep with us at all times as actors. Yes, but at the same time. That leads us to sensitivity, vulnerability, which can be hard to open up to as adults. So it, it's the matter of finding that balance. Well, for whatever reason, to me, all of it runs hand in hand. It's like it's exactly what we ought to be doing. And it's exactly why I am so passionate uh, about acting, actors, storytellers, directors, uh, artists, really. I mean, these are the people that are more toward the front. I mean, we were talking about sound design uh, and sound earlier, just bat behind the scenes. <laughs> and, right. Just trying to get this recording underway. Right. But the brilliance between sound uh, and the where things can happen and all of it is this possibility to generate a, a sense of connection and, and community. And we are, I, I dr truly believe this, communal beings. And yet there's so much from whether it's the messaging or defenses, what I don't know what, what it is, but there's so much that's kind of pulling us in the opposite direction. And so the vulnerability is me getting to, or you or one in my belief, getting closer to themselves. So they're more of a whole being so that way they can actually come out and be better actors, better artists, but beyond the, the, the profession, have a better quality of overall life because their connections are more authentic, richer, real, lacking in the whole false face stuff. I mean, real connection. I think that's another reason why people, I'm, I'm in New York and I'm a huge dog lover. And I'm like, wow, I think everybody has dogs because it's easier to connect with a dog than do the work with myself and another person. <laughs> because yeah, dogs more than any, anyone we know will just love us no matter what. Yes. And so we can truly just be our crappy, wonderful, shitty selves with a dog. And it doesn't matter what Absolutely. we do. And, and you know, there's always the first moment I, when I see dogs in the street, there's the first moment where, um, you know, I, I'm taking in, I'm receiving the energy of the dog owner and the dog. And while I pretty much like all dogs, um, not all dogs like me and it's not there, it's not, yeah. but I have to have that first moment. And if they, uh, if they're there doing their little bob and weave wagging their tail, I'm like, oh, okay, here we are. We're, we're connecting. But if they put up a little bit of a wall, then I'll, I'll hang tight. I won't push my agenda. I'll just stay open. And, and if it's meant to be, it'll come together. And if it's not, well, I'm, you know, it was nice. You're a very sweet looking dog and I wish you a good day. <laughs> <laughs> You know, this actually leads us into story too, because you talked about, you know, the world around us and its messages. And you say that it conditions us in a way that can cause us to lose our authenticity, our intuition, and that you yourself even had to learn to to hide your feelings so that no one really could see who you really were and that you were you were basically being told that you were not enough. Now, what do you think specifically, or where do you think this type of messaging came from in your own life? Well, we live in um, a functioning society. And so there's a lot of 
really useful lessons. Like we learn language, for example. And uh, I I have a love love hate relationship with language. Uh, you know, we're able to communicate right now back and forth with these words and concepts and and get complex ideas across. With that said, so often I find that people, myself included, uh, get lost in the words and miss the actual real connection of the moment. This is a big piece that comes out of uh, the Meisner training, if I use that as a, a go-to, is the the subtext, what's really going on, the, the energy that we're sharing between each other. And the words are sort of like out there on the on the icing, sharing the concepts, but there's something else that's going on, which is this interaction, this connection between us. And, you know, I have my theories, but so many of the lessons uh, as we grow up have to do with, you know, as, as two and three, two, you can still cry and get away with it. But somewhere along the way, parents start losing their patience. They're like, stop crying, you know, act right, behave. And they're, it's not the integration of what, what's going on in the lesson. It's like, boom, just do it, just do it. And uh, and as a result, I think that people, everyone comes away with these little traumas. And sometimes they're a big event. And sometimes they're just slow little attitudes over and over and over. And they end up shutting a person down. And then there's the survival side of us, which is, is uh very young and very intuitive and wants to live and so starts adopting quickly these these uh blocks these defenses these ways of behaving that are not authentic as a way to get love to uh get food to have a shelter etc and they get stuck uh in the back of us as kind of habits and beliefs and until we start to become aware of what we're really doing, uh, these unnecessary lessons get in our way. Uh, so this process of unlearning what we don't need is, is really quite uh, liberating. And also getting back to basics outside of labels and concepts, like that's all in the intellectual, logical conceptual side of our brain left brain and we're lacking in what's and it's typically either in the past or in the future and we start missing out on life which is really now life is only happening in the moment yeah i would say that that's one of my biggest things is that i do tend to live in either that past or that future i'm you know regretting things or replaying things that happened in my past or i'm worried about the future or concerned about where i'm going to be next year or you know what's the next job what's the next show i'm going to be doing so yeah it can really be hard to just live in the moment even my own therapy that i'm taking that's one of our biggest things about just keeping me present keeping me what is it you want to do now what is it that you're feeling where are you being directed because if you're not in the present, then you have no way of learning from the past and you have no way of knowing how to direct yourself to the future. So the, the, the present really is one of the more important things that I'm slowly learning myself uh, is something that has to be central to my own being and, and how I present myself. You know, as you were speaking, I was thinking of this phrase, uh, holding on loosely. And, you know, it, it's like, with deeper awareness, I start to become more imbalanced of when I'm spinning past and future. 
And while I'm I'm not saying, oh, wow, we just live so in the moment that there's no direction and it's just this aimless wow thing. Well, that could be fun for a while. I mean, it's nice to have some direction, but I have to hold on loosely so that way it doesn't overtake the joyous moment after moment happenings that are and opportunities that are occurring in every moment. But so often we're stuck in our agenda or expectation of the future that that what's going on here and now, I miss out on opportunities, or I also miss out on connection and steamroll people or feel steamrolled. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that was part of, you'd mentioned when you were growing up that you were popular, well-known, but maybe not well-liked? Do you think that, <laughs> that, that that was part of the disconnect that you were performing on one end, but not really connecting on the other? Oh, absolutely. I was, it was, it was completely uh, transactional in the sense of, you know, there's the the Smokey Robinson song, uh, Tears of a Clown or what, mm -hmm. what is this? Is yeah, that Tears this? of a Clown. Yeah. Yeah. So you got the clown and that's who I was uh, because I was trying to be funny uh, and cute and get attention because I wanted to be seen. But what I was presenting was not authentic. It was all a, 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 an external a joke, whereas what was really going on, I, I didn't know how to show that because I thought it would be stepped on. And so so it was, it was definitely uh, out of sync, disassociated or incongruent from the reality. And it's interesting when we have the uh, facade or the public persona, if you will, and uh, how isolating the that public persona can be. And it's sad because you see many great artists, great performers who have not come to terms and start to identify with their public persona. And it's so sad to see how many great artists become involved in some kind of drugs uh, as a way to, I don't know, fill the void within and try to live up to the, the persona, the false face. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Judy Garland's another big one where she yeah. would take drugs to, to, to get up and amped up and high. And then she would take drugs to just slow her down and go to sleep. So she was constantly trying to use external forces like drugs to just keep her in some kind of balance. And that can only work for so long and not very well at that. And one has to look to it at the quality of life as a result of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, the uh, incredible true inner torment that someone who's dealing with this public persona and and not able to actually ever be seen. So this is this is one of my passions too is is for the healthy artist. Yeah, but yeah, because it's not just big stars like Michael Jackson or Judy Garland. It's it's each of us just in our own lives and our small community of people that we can still put on that persona and feel not connected to a real self at all. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I while I admire uh, the people who have risen to have the name on the on all the marquees and on all the posters, that's that's all fine and well. But at the end of the day, we're all human beings, and I think this is really important to remember. We are all human. Human. We're far more similar than we are different. And uh, for the person who isn't there to put somebody on a pedestal, that has its issues. And mm -hmm. for the person, people on the pe pedestals. Uh, if they if they are identifying with their pedestal, I think it's a bit of a dangerous place to 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 identify that uh, the human element is going to be far more fulfilling in the long run. But we all have our journeys.
Yeah. And I mean, it gets back to that, to those childhood, teenage years when, you know, I think that's a tough time for all of us as we kind of formulate who we are as people. We we start to see, well, if I do this, I get this reaction. Or if I don't do that, then I don't get that reaction. You know, so we start to have these feelings and lessons that tend to stick with us for years yes. and decades on down the well, line. Unless, unless we're doing some kind of awareness work, what, whatever that may be, whether it's therapy, whether it happens to be in the artist training. Uh, and I, I, I qualify it by saying responsible artist training in the sense that, you know, it's not just feeding and indulging and dwelling in the narcissism, but it's becoming aware of, oh, wow, this is what I'm up to. I'm running a racket right now you know, as I do this and it's not really authentic to who I am, I'm actually, I might be getting a reward, but it's not the real reward that I I want or need. Yeah, because I've certainly been with those actors that are brilliant on stage. And then as I get to know them off stage, not much changes. It's It's still that same kind of performance and they're still on a stage of sorts. And then there are those that that might be more subtle actors that, you know, they're not big and flashy on stage, but then you get to know them off stage, and there's just a deepness. There's a connection to themselves. There's also, I feel like I'm drawn to those people as well, because there's just something in them that is so subtle, but so real that I, it's like, how can I be more like you? <laughs> Beautiful. And it's inspiring. I agree. It's inspiring. And my relationship to to that is it it reminds me to to keep coming back home and uh, renewing and reconnecting with things that really matter. And a lot of times it, it, they're so simple, like a sunrise, you know, the birds calling outside uh, the window in the morning, seeing that cute puppy, helping somebody who's you know disabled get in the door of the coffee shop. And just being open to all the moments and happenings that are happening constantly through life. I, th- I think that might be part of what you're talking about in those actors uh, and, and performing artists, that uh, there's something, they aren't necessarily all the flash, but they might be able to turn the flash on too, uh, but they don't have to stay in it. They're, you know, There's some kind of real human humble empathetic connection yeah i agree i love it it's very it it inspires me yeah it truly does connection is definitely one of the bedrocks of acting and performing on stage whether it's with fellow performers or the audience itself And while Jules and I have been talking about a connection with ourselves first and foremost, there is also the important connection with the role or the show that we're in or auditioning for. In this week's bonus episode, Jules shares an audition story that took him out of his comfort zone and into the wild world of the Blue Man Group. Now, to get bonus episodes like these is pretty simple, actually. And all it takes is a monthly subscription to Why I'll Never Make It, You see, while podcasting is definitely enjoyable, and this particular podcast is a labor of love for me, it isn't cheap, and costs keep going up each and every year. So for just a few dollars a month, you not only support Why I'll Never Make It, but you'll also hear audition stories and other conversations with guests that you won't get in these free episodes. 
So please consider lending your financial support to this podcast with a monthly or yearly subscription by going to whyillnevermakeit.com and click subscribe or just look for the link in the show notes. Well, that leads us to story number three, which is the way that you've been a teacher or facilitator, as you say, to hundreds of people. And you've you've seen them experience incredible transformations, both as individuals and actors, which, as we've been saying, is so important to find that balance of, of being both, you know, being able to present both authentically. What is it that you see is the most common source of resistance or hesitancy as you begin to work with actors? So Martha Graham says the body never lies. And I say, are we listening? As in our body, in the moment, as we become more reawakened or embodied, so much information is there. And the resistance tends to come from an idea. When I talk about being stuck in a head, left brain, intellectual, it comes from an idea. And the idea is a kind of, this is what I want. And so there's no actual contact moment by moment by moment. It's a steamrolling. It's a a kind of bullying ahead, if you will. Um, An idea instead of an actual interaction. So the idea, that's one. Another piece comes from the um, habitual defenses that come. These are those, what I would call the lessons that we kind of want to strip away, where we're defensive, where we're holding our our pose, we're holding our behavior, not because it's authentic, but because it's a mechanical habit of who we think we are. So that way we'll get whatever we think we want in our in our life. And You're talking about the, the, those like physical habits that we just have in our body? Oh, yes. If you look at where a person grows up, for example, you look at all these things that create a character, you know, what, what kind of, were they from the so-called good side of the tracks or the bad side of the tracks? Were they from this period or that period? And all these little things play into not actually who I believe the, the person underneath it is, but that's the public persona that gets put on. It's like an armor and it's physical and it's also mental. It's a combination of of the body starts picking up physical habits with then kind of feed the uh, the thinking of, of who I think I am. And then the who I think I am and who I think I should be kind of feed my physical behavior. And there's a real uh, disconnect a lot of times from what's underneath and who I really am. So it shows up in the shorthand, it shows up as judgment, tremendous amount of judgment of self. I shouldn't feel this way. You shouldn't feel that way. Judgment and control. Those are the two biggies that come up over and over. And the the judgment is of themselves and the attempt to control oneself is in place and or the uh, judgment of others. It's a disconnect. It's an instant label that's put on something or someone else instead of really seeing what's going on, instead of really breathing in and listening and getting a sense of what's happening here now in the moment and having an authentic connection, it's been summarized. And this is a big societal issue. Things are put into these categories and there's always so much gray area of what's really going on. So I can stereotype. Yeah, it's like yeah. trying to, to figure out, you know, important ideas or policies or, you know, whatever's going on in the world by a headline. 
a headline is only a few words when the actual article can give you more nuance as far as what's actually happening at a, in, in a complex issue. It's, it's, it's the same with us as actors. You know, we can give like the headline, the, the quick persona, but there's got to be more underneath there to really bring a character to life. Absolutely. And this is, and step one is rediscovering oneself, in my opinion. They have, or going into the little uh, bits and pieces, the gray area inside. And that's where it's important for the teacher, the facilitators to create a really safe space of acceptance. There's a great quote from Kara Brock, who wrote a book called Radical Acceptance. And uh, she uses an acronym called RAIN, and it has to do with our feelings. Recognize, that's the R. Uh, allow is the A. The I is for being interested or investigating. And the N is for nurturing. And uh, people brush over that over, all the time. And it's so valuable because that's where all these juicy nuggets are at. And then as one starts to, at least this is my experience, as I've gone through that process within myself, suddenly it's as though I'm so much more receptive to where others are at. So I'm actually deeper in connection as I've, as I've opened up and, and connected with myself, I've actually now set the, the, the stage for me to open up and connect with others. And uh, this is incredibly powerful as sort of step one for the actor, because now I'm really able to get into the uh, shoes of someone else, or at least see into, see into their world and, and have empathy as to how, what lenses and filters they're looking through. And so the, in the, in the process of, of the movement work, particularly the movement work, because you're literally moving, um, blocked experience. In other words, drama that's gotten stored in the body. When you start moving it in this safe space, all of a sudden vulnerability starts happening. Tears start happening. All the deeper subconscious messaging of self-loathing and low esteem and um, rage towards somebody that, that it was unexpressed towards. I didn't speak up. And I, all of a sudden that starts pouring out and you're not reliving the past. It's not about re-traumatizing you. It's already in you. Now you're finally allowing it to move through and out of you to create space for something new to come in. I think it's so interesting. They talk about stress and how we store it in our body and, and, and the tension that comes from living and, and the traumas that happen in our life. I, I remember I was going through a divorce many years ago, and I certainly knew that was hard time. You know, I had my depressing moments. And, and so I certainly logically knew and felt that, that it was just a, a tough time. Yet I went to go get a massage once and the guy was working on my back. I'd been to this guy before, the same kind of massage as before, just to, you know, get in there, relax. But he hit a certain spot in my back and I just, it was a downpour. Tears were coming out of one particular spot. It was almost like a, a physical place in my body where all of these emotions were stored somehow. And when he hit it, it just came out. It's profound. Yeah. There is a lot of uh, science and, and study going into this on how trauma gets stored in the body. There's a great book by a guy named uh, Peter Levine called In an Unspoken Voice. And there's another one called uh, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. And um, in a nutshell, I'll just share one story. An animal, say uh, out in the wild, an antelope, and it's being hunted by the tiger, and it goes to the great chase. 
and somehow the antelope escapes on the other side. And they literally, because they've been, they've been shot with all these chemicals, this fight flight response, they've been shot up with all these chemicals to get away now. They literally go through a shaking process. They shake off the trauma and they come back to a nice homeostasis and they go and eating their grass. Whereas in uh, the human being, a lot of the conditioning is to pull it together, to hold it together, to buckle it in, to, uh, you know, get over it, to uh, pull your bootstraps up, all these little pieces. And they have a much bigger meaning because we're getting in the habit of constantly holding uh, these, these little mini traumas or bigger. And then there's another piece too, which has to do with the presence. When we go past and forward so often, we're self-generating our uh, trauma because our, our memory, our history, whether it's somewhere in the background is then compressing and creating the uh, muscular tension. So the moment we start doing some kind of body work, some kind of somatic processing, whether it's going out and dancing. Why do people like going out and dancing? And why is there so much resistance about, oh, I can't dance and nah, 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 nah. but you start doing different kinds of body work or a particular kind of movement that ultimately becomes a improvisational, spontaneous uh, dance where part of stuff, a lot of stuff is being processed. You're releasing a lot of things that you've been holding on the body while at the same time opening up to the present moment, whether it's through the music or whether it's through the contact with other people. Uh, so it can be incredibly cathartic. And as an actor, you're clearing the instrument so that way you can really connect with your partner. So you can really drop into the imaginary circumstances. If you've got all the baggage from your, from your real life stuck in you, then you're going to play one role. It's going to be very similar to whatever your stuck real life character has been. But once you start to clear out some of this, you not only have more um, reliable resources as an, as an actor, but you've got more versatility because you've maintained your own garden. You've cultivated a practice of, of like maintaining the garden of you or you as an instrument. Well, it's also tearing down those walls as well that hold us back, not only as an individual, but can hold us back as an actor so that we, we can only go so far, we can only relate and communicate so much. So tearing down that wall of protection that yes. we put around ourselves is certainly very important. So you talk about wanting to have a safe space, especially as, as you're teaching and facilitating people, but how do you find that balance of certainly being vulnerable, but then also protecting those tender parts of ourselves? As I start to work through the comfort zones or defenses or go-tos, often the reason that they're in place is because I'm not home. I have not found a sense of self-love, really, all sorts of little tiny ways. And the more that I become familiar with, it's okay to have these feelings. It's okay. Uh, I'm not shamed or getting locked into this or that guilt or uh, I'm not good enough. I'm, I'm coming forward and letting myself have that experience and going, it's all right, it's all right, it's all right. I, that's, I, that's a feeling and I'm not a bad person. I'm not any less, I'm enough and I'm whole. Uh, there's a certain sense of self-acceptance and self-love to where it's not about protecting the tender spots any longer. They don't need to be protected. In fact, if anything, 
uh, it goes the other direction because uh, at least in my experience, life has become so much more alive because I see the struggle in others and my empathy and compassion go out. And it's not that I'm there to go and fix it, but I'm there to accept and 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 send love instead of judgment. At least I'm not pushing people in the wrong direction. And I'm talking about simple interactions just on the street, uh, going, you know, living life that I'm going to be of, of service and support in just the little ways uh, throughout all of the moments. And, and I definitely think that that crosses over into um, the classroom, but it also crosses over into the way people are learning to take care of themselves, to see themselves, accept themselves, love themselves. And then from there, now it takes far less courage and it's far less dangerous for me to share something vulnerable because I'm not falling into the limiting beliefs of, oh, that's bad. One of the most foundational techniques in acting came from the actor and teacher Sanford Meisner, who believed that acting is the ability to behave absolutely truthfully under imaginary circumstances. And many teachers have added on to this basic technique with their own practices and methods. One of those is Lloyd Williamson, who's had a major influence on Jules and how he was trained and the way he teaches as well. Lloyd is an actor and professor who trained with Meisner and Harold Clerman, as well as choreographer and dancer Anna Sokolow. He watched how dancers could move freely and without tension, while actors were often affected physically by the weight of their emotional performances. Here is Lloyd himself talking about the development of the Williamson technique. It's about opening the body in motion, but it also has its roots in motion and sound as they happen growing organically out of the body as it begins to interact with the world around it. Therefore, the body begins to open and connect more fully with the world around it, i.e. music to other people, and that flows from the very beginning with both motion and sound. So when you walk into the acting situation, you have a body that's open that connects immediately with the surroundings and with the other person. But the purpose of it is to take immediately and be there with you when you're acting. And when we do our work well, it's something that people will talk about many years afterward as being things that they take into their acting. So it's not just the movement part of it, but it's actually motion and sound. What is it specifically about this technique that has helped you transform yourself and other people that you've been teaching? The Williamson technique, it's like an unsung superhero. It supports really the one of the basic premises of my understanding of the Meisner technique, this ability to really listen, to really hear what's being said. But not only am I hearing what's being said, but I'm also hearing myself at the same time, really hearing myself. In other words, my point of view, and I'm not talking about the superficial defenses of reactionary point of view. I'm talking about the deeper uh, soulful point of view. So the only way I could get there within the, the Meisner work was through the movement work of Lloyd Williamson. So you go through this technique and there's other things like blocked breath 
or blocked experience manifests tension in the body. And tension is like a deflection. It holds the emotion in, the experience in, and it also blocks us from receiving. So as we start softening our body and melting and giving up and giving in and giving way, suddenly we become far more present Instead of in our ideas, we're in our body and we're receiving information, experiencing it. And we're going through a practice, reconditioning ourselves to allow ourselves to let that behavior flow right out on the motion and sound on a tension-free body. So it's, it's huge. It seems like it gets to an important lesson that I think we often forget that the less we give, the less we actually show of ourselves than the less we can receive from others. And I think that that's one of the biggest blockers in communicating on an individual level, but also then communicating on stage in a scene, if we're blocked in that way. You know, this idea of giving, you, you just touched on something which, you know, I have certain quotes from people in my life that always stick with me. They're like stars in the heavens and they guide me through the sea of life, right? And there was a, a woman, uh, when I was 17 or 18, a, a Jewish woman at USC, I had a short stint there and, and we were in some dance event or something. And she decided to invite me to coffee. And she goes, the greatest gift anyone can ever give is the gift of time. And to me, time is listening to take a sincere interest in the relationship of right here, right now, who, where I'm at with you. you, you see what I'm saying? And so to me, that's the biggest gift. So I don't, I don't even have to uh, feel like I have to perform. All I have to do is show up uh, and give my, my listening and it will happen organically. If that makes any sense. Yeah. It reminds me of a quote from St. Francis of Assisi, where he said, you know, evangelize, you know, this is from a Christian perspective, but he's saying evangelize to everyone, use words when necessary. Yeah. Because so much of whatever we are passionate about, whatever means the most to us, whatever we want to share with the world can be done in so many more ways than just by our words alone. It's by how we conduct ourselves, how we listen. There's just so many subtle ways that we can connect and relate to someone without just uh, <laughs> speaking at them constantly. And this refers back to those actors that you were talking about that have the big uh, razzle-dazzle versus uh, they're really there. Then that's why artists, actors, directors, storytellers, et cetera, why they're so needed in this world, because they're giving us a reminder. They're bringing it back to things that matter. And when I say things that matter, I'm not being all like a woo-woo with this. I'm like saying things that truly create a quality of life. All of a sudden, you know, you're not wanting to run out and go to the party because something else is so much more fulfilling. There's no more FOMO of fear of what I'm missing. It's like, oh, wow, something so delicious as a nice dinner with so-and-so or a walk by myself or uh, spending, you know, all these things, and then bringing that into character and other story. But I, I, I do think that that coming home is so valuable for, for, the, for everyone, but also for the actor, because the more that you can come home, the more that you can venture out and really explore what it's like to not be home. And that, that's, a, that's kind of what I find a lot of character is, is being far away, having a lot of filters and lenses and personas up.
Yeah, yeah. It's it's amazing how it's these simple ideas, these simple techniques that are really trying to to break down the things that we have just so overcomplicated. It reminds me of how babies, infants, can scream at the top of their lungs for 20 minutes and can do it again, hour after hour, when they need something. Yet, if I tried to do that, I wouldn't be able to speak for two days. Because yes. I, th there, there's tension, I'm worried about how I'm sounding, or, you know, I can't just release in that way that a baby can, because a baby has no cares, no concerns. Well, and this comes back to the lessons that we pick up. We've been told to shut down. We've been told to keep it in. And so when all of a sudden something comes up, uh, we start to grip around these things instead of um, giving ourselves permission. And that's a huge part of the Williamson work. It's also a big piece of uh, my relationship to the Alexander technique is this subtle body fiber softening and lengthening throughout my whole body. And I start connect, I start realizing how a simple thought can trigger a muscular tension. And so this is a practice. It's a practice of unwinding, untangling all of those uh, little muscular tension patterns that we fire off unnecessarily. And therefore we can't scream for 20 minutes consecutively. <laughs> not that I really want to have to scream for 20 consecutive minutes, but you know. Let's yeah. hope not, right? Yeah, let's hope we don't get to that point. <laughs> but sometimes, depending on, I don't know, Medea, uh, you might be put in that position to where there's that deep dot, that, that horror where that needs to come through. And how do we prepare our body so that way it can have that elasticity and, and mobility and endurance like the baby? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, well, how can people find you can, can learn more about you and your teaching and, and connect with you in that way? Well, the, the easiest way is um, is my website, which is juleshelm.com. That's uh, J-U-L-E-S-H-E-L-M.com. And Instagram and, and Facebook, are, you can find me there too pretty easily. Well, it's certainly been a joy to talk to you and learn where your teaching and passion for this has come from as you've grown up and continued to learn as we all do. So thank you for sharing your lessons with us. Well, thank you. Thank you very, very much. And it's amazing. It's always a good sign when I can't believe it's already time. So here we are. Anyway, thank you so much. It's a pleasure getting a chance to hang out with you today. Thank you so much for joining Jules, Helm, and me today. But remember, the conversation continues not only with his audition story bonus episode, but also with the final five questions on the Win Me blog. You'll find links to all that and more in the show notes or by going to whyillnevermakeit.com. Well, that does it for me, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Background music is by John Bartman and Blue Dot Sessions. Why I'll Never Make It is a WinMe Media production, and it is part of the Helium Radio Network and a member of the Broadway Makers Alliance. Join me next time as we talk more about why I'll never make it.